How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be in conversation with Kate Anderson Brower, a journalist and best-selling author. We are discussing her book, Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon, the first authorized biography of one of the most popular stars of classical Hollywood. Kate, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me, David. So Kate, what prompted you to write a book about Elizabeth Taylor? You know, I got to know Senator John Warner, who was her sixth husband. She was famously married eight times to seven men. And John Warner, a senator from Virginia, a Republican, welcomed me into his home and was very interested in talking about her life and her legacy. And he introduced me to her family. And they were ready at that point to have someone write a book about her life. So they gave me access to her letters and diaries. It was incredible. So how long did it take you to do the research and the writing for this book? The research was about two and a half years and the writing about a year. Did you ever, when you're doing research for two and a half years, say, this is longer project than I thought, and maybe I shouldn't have taken this project on, or you didn't think that? Uh, no, I never thought that in this case, because her life was so compelling. And at first, you know, I wanted to only talk about her HIV and AIDS work. But um, in the end, writing the story of her entire life was kind of like a tour through the 20th century. It was like, you know, the end of the studio system the sexism she experienced. I mean, it just was an incredible look at American history. Did you have access to Elizabeth Taylor's private papers and did her children cooperate? I did have access. There are about 7,300 letters, diary entries, personal notes, 10,000 photographs. Her children did cooperate. There are four of them. And the trustees of her estate cooperated, and there are three of them, her grandson, her assistant, and her lawyer. And so they're meticulously cataloged in an office in Beverly Hills, where they have her old costumes, and they have an archivist who's in charge of all of her papers. So it's a very serious endeavor for them. Well, she must have been somebody that was a bit of a pack rat, uh, <laughs> holding on to all those documents. I mean, does she like to save everything? Is that how she had all those things? She did. And it was funny. I mean, for me as a as a journalist, the things that I loved the most were not obviously the published interviews and the press clippings. It was the private diary entries that she didn't think anyone would ever really read or at least not publish. And there was one um, fantastic folder that just said, RB notes, ET personal, do not open. And of course, that was the first folder that I went through, which was her love letters to Richard Burton. And they were beautiful and heartfelt. And the ups and downs of their relationship, it was a complete roller coaster ride. I was fascinated by it. She was married eight times and she had 
seven different men that she was married to. Is that right? That's right. Richard Burton twice. Yeah. And uh, she had children with which husbands? She had two children with Michael Wilding, her second husband, one daughter with Mike Todd, her third husband. And then she and Eddie Fisher adopted a child who then Richard Burton kind of raised. And how many grandchildren does she now have? You know, that's a really good question. Very, very many. So Elizabeth Taylor was the ultimate movie star because of her beauty, her acting skills, her personal life, her many marriages, I suspect. But is it one reason that she became the ultimate movie star? What do you think made her the most famous movie star during her lifetime? I mean, that's a good question. I think she has that star quality that's unquantifiable. You know, I mean, she was gorgeous, of course, but she was also an amazingly talented actress. I mean, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is one of the best films ever. So what would you say is her lasting impact on the movie industry now? Um, is she considered the gold standard for what it means to actually be a movie star? I think she is. I mean, I, I think her cultural influence is what's most interesting to me. I mean, I think that she was the original influencer, right? And I think every actress from Kim Kardashian and reality TV on now in the modern culture wants to have the influence that Elizabeth had. And, you know, she had that in part because of MGM and the studio system that built up these huge stars. And she turned this commodity that was made for her into something really powerful. So perhaps the most famous marriage of the 20th century might have been her initial marriage to Richard Burton, because they seem to have more public attention paid to that than anything else you can think of, even as much as President of the United States and his wife. Why were so many people so fascinated by the Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton marriage and all of their ups and downs? What was it that attracted paparazzi to follow her everywhere she went, including the bathroom? <laughs> she didn't even know why she was famous at a certain point, so famous. I think it was aspirational. You know, here was this woman who lived on a yacht in the Mediterranean, who had Bulgari jewelry and diamonds and emeralds and lived this lavish lifestyle. And in a way, I think women especially, but also men, I mean, looked at her as someone who they fantasized about becoming or being with, or, I mean, she just symbolized so much to so many people. And it, you're right. It was the birth of the paparazzi, her relationship with Richard Burton. So she was married eight times to seven different men, but why did she have to get married so much? Why couldn't she do what people maybe do today? They just kind of cohabit. I think she saw each marriage as a chance to become someone else. You know, she was Mrs. Mike Todd. She was Mrs. Richard Burton. It was a kind of a way to escape her life, which had become kind of suffocating for her because for a child star, she was a household name by the time she was 12 years old in National Velvet. And I think when that's your reality, all you want to do is have somebody help you with the business of being yourself. You know, she wanted a strong man in her life to help guide her. And she never found that one person. I think Richard Burton was as close as she got. So in her later years, after the, I'd say that apogee of her acting career, she became the most visible celebrity in the world, raising money for AIDS research at a time when many people didn't want to talk about AIDS or certainly not raise money for it. Why was she so interested in AIDS research and the impact it had on so many people? You know, I interviewed Dr. Fauci before COVID about Elizabeth, and he talked about giving her a tour of the NIH. And he said she knew more about 
the science behind what they were working on than any celebrity he'd ever talked to, many politicians. And I think it came from this empathy she had. She loved the underdog. So throughout her life, there were gay men, Montgomery Clift, Rock Hudson, James Dean, who was bisexual, these men in her life. And she gravitated towards them because she felt they were being mistreated, first of all, but also they were very captivating, intelligent, funny, talented people in the arts. And she had great respect for them. And um, I think she hated to see the way they were being mistreated. I mean, their lives were destroyed. If you were a gay man and you wanted to be with someone publicly, Louis B. Mayer would end your career, you know, and she hated to see that. Toward the end of her career, she also did something that a lot of influencers do today. She endorsed a product, a perfume, and it became a instant best-selling perfume. Why did she decide to do that? And what was so unique about it? Did it actually smell better than other perfumes? I don't know if you've tried white diamonds or been around somebody who's had white diamonds on, but it's a very intense aroma. She was an entrepreneur. She wanted to make money. She needed to make money also because of this lavish lifestyle she had. So her assistant said, you know, you need to figure out a way to brand yourself. And it was really this assistant that kind of put the bug in her ear to do this. And she created passion and she created white diamonds. And I grew up with that black and white, you know, commercial where she's got the diamonds in her hands. And it's something that she felt women everywhere would want to have a little bit of that glamour. And this was a way to give it to them. One of the things that she did that brought a lot of glamour to her was a seeming obsession with fancy jewelry. Did that start with Richard Burton? I mean, she essentially was buying the jewelry herself because, you know, if Richard spent a million dollars on the Krupp diamond or whatever emeralds it was at the time, she was the one making all the money in that marriage, most of the money in that marriage. Um, she loved the symbolism of the jewelry. When she passed away, Christie's did this huge sale and it was the biggest private jewelry collection in the world at the time. It was more than $150 million. And each jewel was kept in the original box with the name of the man who had given it to her. And for her, the jewelry kind of told the story of her life. It wasn't about the money and it wasn't about showing off. She was not a snob. She loved to let people try on the crop, which was a 33 carat diamond. For her, it was the sheer joy of these pieces and the beauty of the stones. I mean, she was a connoisseur of jewelry and knew more than, you know, I interviewed the head of the jewelry department at Christie's. He said he knew as much as she did about the jewelry. So it was not a snobby thing for her. She just loved pretty things. So during her life, she converted uh, from the Christian science religion that her parents had had to Judaism. And not, as you point out in her book, just because she married one person who was Jewish, Eddie Fisher, but it had nothing to do with that, really. Is that right? It's true. People think that she converted because of Mike Todd, actually, and then Eddie Fisher. First of all, she didn't like Eddie Fisher. That's the one husband who she just could not stand. And at one point, he even held a gun to her head. It was a really bad marriage. But Mike Todd was one of the great loves of her life, and he was Jewish, and I think her conversion to Judaism was the spiritual connection. Um, but she also grew up in England during World War II. And she, right before the war, she left. And she had tremendous kind of empathy for the people who were, who were left there and didn't get the chance to leave. Well, let's talk about her early years. 
Uh, where was Elizabeth Taylor born and where was she raised? She was born in England. She was raised in Hampstead Heath, a beautiful area in London, and she had a country house. Her mother had befriended a conservative MP and, you know, her mom was a big social climber and a stage mother. And Elizabeth rode horses in the countryside and had this idyllic life. And then all of a sudden, you know, she has to leave it behind because the war was um, about to break out. And her parents were American. They were from the Midwest. And her dad was a very successful art dealer. So her mother was an actress wannabe and her father was an art dealer. And because his business took him to England, that's where she grew up until World War II's onset forced them to really leave the country. They didn't think England was safe anymore. Is that right? That's right. And they ended up in Beverly Hills, which is not a bad place to end up if you want to become an actress, right? So how did she get into acting? Did she have her a mother say, you need to be an actress, I'm going to take you to all the auditions? Or did it just happen by happenstance? Her mom definitely pushed her into it. You know, she says, uh, her mother said, you know, Elizabeth was stopped on the street and told that she was constantly told that she looked like Vivian Lee and she should have played her daughter and gone with the wind. And her mother would say they kind of just fell into it. But really, it was a concerted effort to go to auditions. And then eventually she signed with, uh, she had MGM and I believe it was Universal pitted against each other at one point. She ends up signing with Universal and it's a disaster. And they say that she looks too old, actually, and they don't extend her contract, that her face is too old. It is said that she was gorgeous, even as a pre-teenager. She's just a striking young girl. People have often commented on the shape of her face, but also her eye color. What was so distinctive about her eye color and this oval shape of her face? Well, she had this beautiful raven hair and porcelain skin and this kind of heart-shaped face, I think. Um, but her eye color is what she's most known for. And I at first thought it was violet, but her her assistant quickly corrected me and said it was actually lavender. But I mean, it, in reality, she had blue eyes. But in certain lights, they look purple. So normally, uh, blue eyes are associated with people that might have blonde hair or maybe very fair skin. But she was raven-haired, as you mentioned. And uh, did her parents have blue eyes? Where did the blue eyes come from? I think her dad had blue eyes. Her mom had brown eyes. And, you know, her mom, I think, was she was an actress who was semi-successful at one point. And you pointed that out, that, like, it was the unfulfilled desire that her mother had to kind of get to the point of stardom that really without Sarah, I don't think Elizabeth would have been the superstar that she became. Sarah pushed her into it. So she had some parts when she was, uh, I guess, a pre-teenager. But when she turned as a teenager, the part that made her nationally famous was National Velvet. Is that her first very big starring role? Yeah, I mean, she was in Lassie Come Home and she was in Jane Eyre. But yes, her big starring role was National Velvet. Yeah. And National Velvet is a case where a young girl rides a horse and she had great skills in riding a horse because she'd grown up doing that. But what was it about National Velvet that made her so popular? Was it her acting skills, the story itself, her beauty? What do you think it was? I mean, it was an early girl power message in that movie where she was playing Velvet Brown, a girl that wants to ride a 
a horse in an all male horse race and she dresses like a boy and gets her hair cut in order to do it. And so she really was that girl. She was that gutsy young girl. And uh, over and over again throughout her career, she chose these roles that were kind of edgy because I think for 1944, that was pretty edgy. And, you know, she did a place in the sun later where they're talking about teen pregnancy. I mean, she took on roles that were very controversial at the time. And that was the first one that she she loved. National Velvet is a big success, but then her career kind of plateaus a bit, as I remember from your book. Um, she had a hard time kind of getting other roles comparable. What happened during that period of time? The studio, MGM, really wanted to kind of keep her under wraps until they could have her be the love interest. And by the time she was in the last time I saw Paris, she was just this beautiful teenager. And they had her, you know, kissing a man in his 40s in that film. It was really mind bending for her because here she is a student going to school on the MGM lot, having to to do, you know, math and science and everything. And then then she goes on the set and has to kiss an older man. I mean, it was a really strange way to grow up. So they kept her under wraps for a while because she was too young. It was thought to be having a romantic interest. You know, she's 14 or 15. It's not considered a great thing uh, in those days to have a romantic interest if you're 14 or 15. Is that it? Yeah. And I, yeah, they wanted to sort of let it play out and let her kind of blossom. And, and they really waited to turn her into a bit of a, a sex symbol. And her mom pushed her into that too. I mean, she redecorated her room uh, Elizabeth had this very sweet childlike room. And by the time she was 14, 15 years old, her mom turned all of the sweetness into, you know, pink and red. She pushed her into adulthood pretty quickly. Well, she finally gets a love interest in real life and she gets engaged, I guess, to a young man. Who is the young man that she is engaged to at the outset? The first love of her life was Bill Pauley, who was the son of a, a wealthy, I believe he was an ambassador at one point. Um, and they met, fell in love in Florida, and Bill was older than her. He was, you know, about a decade older than her. He proposes, and there's a photo of them in the book where they look so happy. And in the end, her mom pushed her to not go through with it and kind of was the first sign that she was going to control her life completely. And, her, you know, when Elizabeth would try to get out of acting every now and then, her mom would say, do you know how many girls would kill to be you? You know, she, Elizabeth was interested in going to college. Her mom said, you know, and give all of this up for that life. She was making her family a lot of money. In those days, there was no law as there is today with respect to child actors. Today, I think the money has to be managed in a certain way so that the Parents can't take most of the money and use it themselves. But in those days, from what you wrote, it seems like a lot of the money went to the fuel of the parents' lifestyle, right? Yeah. And I think it contributed to the parents' marriage kind of falling apart for a period of time because there was a lot of built up resentment that Elizabeth's father had because he would have to schedule times to see his own daughter, you know? And at one point in the book, I talk about him being abusive to Elizabeth and hitting her. And she said for the rest of her life, she suffered from lockjaw because of that, because he had hit her so hard in the face. You know, he felt kind of emasculated in a way because she was making so much money. There's no excuse, obviously, for abusing your child. But it was a lot of conflict in that family because of her stardom. But her mom's ambition was so huge. 
So um, I should have said that before she had this uh, relationship with the man that she did not marry, she had a kind of a semi-real relationship with a very famous football player, Glenn Davis, who had won the Heisman Trophy, I think, been a football player at Army. Was that for real or was that just uh, mostly the studios were trying to promote uh, the All-American Girl and the All-American Guy? It was the studios trying to promote this kind of sweet couple. Her first marriage to Nikki Hilton, the studio actually paid for the ceremony and like timed it to the release of Father of the Bride. So everything was about the creation, the kind of, it was phony, essentially, this world that was created for her. And she was very smart and she knew that. And her marriage to Nikki Hilton, her first husband, was a complete train wreck. He was he was an alcoholic. So let's go through the marriages. The first one was to Conrad Hilton, who was the uh, son of the founder of the Hilton Hotel chain. Conrad Hilton was much older than her, wasn't he? No, he wasn't that much older than her, but he was an awful, it was, a, it was an awful fit for her and he couldn't stand, okay. um, you know, playing, playing the supporting actor to her. All right. So that didn't last. He was abusive in some ways. So then her second husband is Michael Wilding. Who is Michael Wilding? He's a debonair British actor. And he was much older though. Yes. Yes, he was. And that didn't work out because of the age difference or what? Uh, because he was just a little boring for her. Honestly, you know, I got to know his son, Chris, their son, Chris. And he said, my dad just would not hit back. He would not fight. I mean, she actually literally picked fights with her husbands where she wanted them to punch back. And, and there was kind of a strange need for drama in her life. Well, he was a passive British upper crust kind of guy who yeah. didn't really want to get into emotional uh, entanglements or fights. So he kind of was mild and she wanted somebody who was going to punch back a bit and be more aggressive. Is that it? Assertive. Yeah. A Richard Burton type. So let's go to her third husband, Michael Todd, whose real name was not Michael Todd. His real name was a kind of a longer Jewish name, right? Yeah. Yeah. Abram Goldbogen, I think. But yes, he was the son of a rabbi and he grew up pretty, you know, middle class, lower middle class. So he didn't have much money, but he was a self-made man. And she loved that about him. But he's kind of swept her off her feet. He was also a fair bit older than her, I think yes. maybe 20 years or so. Yes. But what did he actually do for a living? What was his occupation? He was a producer, a super producer. He did Around the World in 80 Days. He was a larger than life character. He started out producing kind of PG-13 rated acts with women taking their clothes off and all of that. And he, so he was really edgy at the time and she loved that. They were only married for a year before he died in a plane crash. So she was in love with him. He produced a movie that turned out to win the Academy Award for the best picture around the world in 80 days. I remember seeing that when I was a boy, but did he really have that much skill in the, in the movie producing area or was that a bit of a luck? In that case, I think he was a masterful showman. I mean, he was able to drum up a tremendous amount of publicity for that movie. He did it in a big event at Madison Square Garden that Elizabeth was part of that kind of was this. In the end, he ended up bringing in elephants. Everything with Mike Todd was larger than life, which she loved about him. Now, he invited her to fly with him on his small private plane. There weren't big private planes in those days. If you had a private plane, they were relatively small. 
they were not jet engines in those days. They were propeller planes. So he was flying from the West Coast, to the East Coast, asked her to go with him. She said no. A uh, number of people were supposed to go. Kirk Douglas, he couldn't go. So what happened to that uh, plane and how did she get informed about the crash? Well, he passed away. Suddenly the plane crashed. She was sick, actually. She had a fever. She was running a temperature. She was going to go on that, that flight. And she had a weird premonition that something was going to happen. And they had not been apart from each other. I mean, they'd only been married for 13 months. So it was the longest time they were going to be away from each other. And he was flying to New York to accept an award. It was the middle of the night. His plane crashes. She has this nightmarish dream about it. She's running a fever. She's tossing and turning in bed. And her doctor comes in in the early morning. And, and she just screams, you know, oh, my God, because she just knew that something was was terribly wrong. You know, she was shooting cat on a hot tin roof at the time. And here she is, a woman in her 20s. She had three kids, a newborn baby with him. And you have to think the tremendous amount of pressure that she was under to keep herself and her family together. It was uh, a lot of post-traumatic stress, I think, kind of like Jackie Kennedy, when something like that happens to you, it obviously shapes the rest of your life. So despite being very ill and having all kinds of problems dealing with the, the crash, he does go to the funeral. And it's a, a, a bit of a scene because every reporter in the world seems to be there covering her. How did she recover from having her husband of about a year plus die? Did she basically go uh, into isolation for a while or did she find another husband or what happened? She has to finish Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I mean, at one point, you know, she's told that she can take her time. She can take more time if she needs it. But she she finds salvation in in acting and finishing that role. And she needs to finish it. So she goes back to work. And Paul Newman and everyone on that set comes to her aid. And it's just incredible. At one point, she had lost so much weight. She wasn't eating. And at one point, she is at a long table. Normally, the food isn't real. And the director of the film says, we're going to all actually eat, you know, and so that we can finally get Elizabeth to eat something. And so they all eat the food. And it's the first real meal she's had since Mike died. Now, when she goes to the funeral of Mike Todd, she has three children. And who watches those children when she's at the funeral? Debbie Reynolds does. Yeah. Debbie Reynolds is a friend of hers and uh, maybe a neighbor. <laughs> she's a friend. She's married to Eddie Fisher. And Eddie Fisher is Mike Todd's very best friend in the world. And so, yeah, she takes care of her kids for her. So she then begins to develop a relationship with Eddie Fisher. And then for the first time, maybe in her career, people are really upset with her because she's now seen as a homebreaker. Uh, is that fair? Oh, very much so. I mean, there was it was a huge scandal and everybody had a side and the studios took full advantage of this and made a lot of money out of it because Debbie was the blonde haired, blue eyed, sweet actress in this perfect marriage. And Elizabeth was the raven haired vixen who was breaking it up. But in reality, Eddie and Debbie's marriage was already over, essentially. And Elizabeth later apologized to Todd Fisher, their son, and said, I'm so sorry for what I did to you. But looking at it through the 2023 lens, it was a really sexist thing to make Elizabeth out into this homewrecker. So 
Eddie Fisher is not quite the love of her life the way Richard Burton later became or Mike Todd was, but she nonetheless marries him. Well, why does she marry him? You know, she has a weakness. You know, she always wants to be looked after and taken care of. And Eddie worshipped her and she felt lonely. And so I think for her, it was helping to keep Mike Todd's memory alive. That's what she said later, even though the two of them were nothing alike. And she later said, you know, Eddie Fisher couldn't hold the candle to Mike Todd. For those who don't remember those days, Eddie Fisher was a reasonably prominent singer, cabaret singer of some type. And uh, his career seemed to go down after he was having this relationship with Elizabeth Taylor because he was seen as having left his wonderful wife. Is that right? That's right. And his two little kids at the time. So it looks bad. So what happens to Elizabeth Taylor is she's marries Eddie Fisher. And then enormous new movie is being brought to her called Cleopatra. And Cleopatra becomes the most expensive movie ever made at the time. And actually one of the most complicated movies ever made. But did she know the uh, male star that she was going to be starring with there, Richard Burton. And who was Richard Burton, by the way? Richard Burton was a stage actor, a Shakespearean actor from Wales. He was the son of a coal miner. He was incredibly intelligent and very kind of handsome with green eyes and dark hair and a pockmarked face from his bouts of acne as he was growing up. He was ruggedly good looking. And so she she does Cleopatra. She's the first actor to ever get paid a million dollars for a film. She demands that much money. And did they want to pay her a million dollars for a for a movie? No, not not especially. But she she said, "I'm going to walk away from this, and you can forget about me." And later on, you know, the head of Fox kind of jokes that he wished he had forgotten about her because she delays that movie so much with the drama with Richard, with calling in sick all the time. It was a complete cluster, the whole shooting of that film. So uh, I think uh, I'd just like to ask you about her public reputation at this time. Her reputation is that she's a great movie star, great actress, uh, likes to get married a lot. Did people generally have a high view of her for all these things, or was she considered to be somebody that you didn't respect or really didn't admire? I think she was kind of a divisive character. I think people did, most people thought she was a glamorous, beautiful woman without that much substance, I think, at the time. And, you know, um, when she was just 31 years old in 1963, the New Yorker magazine's film critic said that Elizabeth was less an actress by now than a natural wonder like Niagara or the Alps. She was kind of a fixture. And I don't know if people really took her as seriously as she deserved to be taken. And was her mother still uh, directing her life a little bit or is her mother faded from doing that? Her mom started faded after the Nikki Hilton marriage. Elizabeth kind of took control of her life. Well, why don't we finish this part of our conversation now? by saying thank you very much for letting us know a little bit about Elizabeth Taylor. We will have a second conversation about Cleopatra and Richard Burton, a little bit more detail. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.